Right. We've got this obsessed with Marvel book game. So Michael's going to power it up. To reset it. And he's going to reset. I picked this up in the works this week. It was only four ninety nine. And it's quite a hefty book. It's written by Peter Sanderson and it's all electronic. Mm-hmm. And Michael is now struggling with the instructions. <laughs> the tough uh, holding down the end three can be awake holding down enter and D. So which is enter? It's try me. There you go. No oh, right. <laughs> right. So a uh, question select. Because you want to do spider Yes, right? go on. Right. Let's have a two players. Play yes, two players. Alright. Question A. One even? Yeah. Oh, do we have to start Wait. with the Fantastic Four though? No, let's, let's use this final one. Alright, let's go on then. 365. Alright, okay. 365, there you go. Okay, okay. So Michael set it up so that we're uh, we're just doing Spider Man questions. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, okay, fair enough. There you go. Have you done it? Yeah. Okay, okay. Go on then. So does it pick questions at random? How does it work? Well, uh, we have to uh, do them because you want specific Spider-Man's. But All right, okay, cool. So, does as it picks, so zero three six five. Yes. Which Marvel superhero or heroes guest starred in the Amazing Spider-Man number one from nineteen sixty-three? Oh, I couldn't possibly know. That. Go on, you do the first question then. So I'm player one. Yes, you're player one. Uh, okay. So do you answer C? So does it? Oh, does that mean it's right? It does. Excellent, good. I'm, I'm very impressed with that. So I, I have one out of one. So you have one out of one. hundred percent. So where is so where is my score then? So my player two. Yeah. Watch me get a question now that I don't know the answer to. Six. <laughs> six. Okay. Oh, so it's giving me three six six. Oh, so is it going in order? I'm assuming, yeah. All right, okay. Who was the first supervillain Spider-Man fourth in The Amazing Spider-Man number one? A, the chameleon. B, Dr. Octopus. C, the green goblin. Or D, the vulture. I am going to say, can I have an A, please, Bob? Go on, press it. Which is the chameleon. So I pressed that A button there. Yes, you do. Yay! Oh, see, I thought it picked it at random. You can do, but we want to do Spider-Mans. All oh, right, so it won't let you pick random within a chapter. No. Oh, that's pretty crap. Three, Go on, three, six, seven, then. What was John Jameson's occupation when he first appeared in The Amazing Spider-Man? Was he A, a soldier, B, an astronaut, C, a reporter, or D, an editor? You've been reading my John Romita omnibus. You know the answer to this one, dude. He was an astronaut. He was an astronaut. Well done. You have to tell the lovely people who are listening what the score is. Okay, okay. The crack is. Okay, fair enough. So it's 367. They can play along at home. Oh, three six eight. Yes, yes. Play along at home and let us know your scores. That would be really good. Um, three six eight. When did J. Jonah Jameson first appear? A. Amazing Fantasy fifteen. B. Amazing Spider-Man number one, nineteen sixty-three, the first story. C. Amazing Spider-Man number one, nineteen sixty-three, the second story. Or D. The Amazing Spider-Man number two, nineteen sixty-three, the first story. I'm gonna go B. Yay! I rock. I roll. I sit up on my throne. I don't know where that came from. No. Uh, right, go on. 369. 369. Where did Peter Parker live with his Uncle Ben and Aunt May? A, the Upper West Side, Manhattan. B, Brooklyn Heights, New York. C, Jackson Heights, Queens. Or D, Forest Hills, Queens. Forest Hills. Yay. Excellent. Well done. So what do I press now to get my next score? Um, enter when it comes so There you go. So I have to press enter now? Yep. Right, Okay. Question 370. Where did Peter Parker go to high school? None of these are particularly difficult so far. Does Angelo want to answer one? Go on, I'll let you answer my question. Where did Peter Parker go to high school? A. Midtown High School. B. DeWitt Clinton High School. C. Forest Hills High School. Or D. Kings County High School. Which one are you going for, love? Midtown High. You sure? Because you are wrong. 
No! Thank you! You didn't lose me a point. I love you, love you. Well, you don't uh, lose a point, you just you don't gain one. <laughs> no, that was, I'm very impressed that you pay attention to me. <laughs> 371. Where did Peter... Oh, we've done that one. Where did Peter Parker go to college? Ooh, A, Columbia University. B, Metro College. C, Empire State University. Or C... Or D, sorry, City College of New York. I'm going to go with ESU. Oh, well done. Okay, Because I've heard him say it before. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so I have to press enter now, do I? Uh, yes. Okay, okay. Question number 372. Where did Peter Parker attend graduate school? Ooh, A, Empire State University. B... City University of New York, C, Columbia University, or D, New York University. I thought he stayed at ESU, didn't he? Did he not? Are you going to go with that? Oh, yeah. I'm going to have to go with A. Yes, I thought he stayed at ESU. So then do you have to press the A button when it finishes? So we're still four for four here, lovely listeners. I hope you're enjoying this pre-credit sequence this Mm -hmm. week. Go on. Which one of the following characters is not one of Peter Parker's high school classmates? Liz Allen, Sally Avril... Wait, no. Go Jess- on, yeah. Jessica Jones or Mary Jane Watson. Oh, this is a retcon question. Is it? That's cheating. You were explaining this yesterday. Yes, this is a retcon question. A, B, C, or D. Which one of these characters was not one of Peter Parker's well, high school classmates? I'm going to go with C, because Bendis made her up. No! Mary Jane! Right. You didn't go to high school with Mary Jane in the comics? Re- that's what I was saying. It's a retcon. Jessica right. Jones went to high school with Peter Parker. Because of Bendis. Because of that. Bendis, yeah. So you knew the answer, dude. Oh, so I'm, I'm one up on you. Sorry about that. <laughs> I really did think you'd get that. Because Sally Avril was... She was in Amazing Fantasy 15, but she was expanded upon by Busiek in Until Tales of Spider-Man. Okay. And I think it was him that gave her the surname Avril. Right. But I could be wrong about that. I'm just going to blame that on Bendis. Blame it on Bendis. Okay, question 374. Which one of the following characters was not one of Peter Parker's college classmates? A, Harry Osborne. B, Gwen Stacy. C, Liz Allen. Or D, Flash Thompson. I am going to go for C. (laughs) He was not in in college with Liz Allen. Which one of them was not one of Peter Parker's college? That's bollocks! He He met Harry in college. Retcon? No. I've re- look, 374's a box out. The actual question for 374, who drew and inked the cover of Amazing Fantasy 15? <laughs> Bastard! Oh, because I know the answer to that. It's um, Jack Kirby and Steve Dioff. Oh, oh, I could swear. So we're both... Down one now. Yeah. Which one of the fallen classmates is not one of Peter Parker? Oh, that's not us, dude! I'm gonna go with Liz Allen. Oh, you <laughs> son of a. <sighs> My mum. I hate you. <laughs> that's just not on that. Right, okay. 376. Who is Dr. Curtis Connors? The Jackal. Well, having seen The Amazing Spider-Man yesterday, I think we all know the answer to this. But A, The Jackal. B, Peter Parker's college biology professor. C, Aunt May's physician. D, The Lizard. Well, isn't it B and D? But we'll go for D. (laughs) Yay. Alright, fair enough. There's no point crying over spilt computers. Go on. Uh, Which of the following characters was not a member of the original Sinister Six, Green Goblin, Curve and the Hunter, Sandman and Mysterio. Who are you going for? Did it, did it, did it, did it. Think about it logically. Which one of those would not be a team player? 
Craven? Is that your final answer? Green Goblin, dude! Green Goblin, son of my brother, Sinister Six. Let me press that button. I thought he was. The answer is A. So do I press enter again? So so we're uh, neck and neck now. So we're neck and neck now. What question am I on? 378. Yeah. Why did Dr. Kirk Connors... What the hell? Attacked by towels. Yeah. Why did Dr. Kirk Connors perform the experiment that turned him into the lizard? A, to regenerate his missing arm. B, to attempt to cure a fatal disease. C, to become a supervillain. Or D, to communicate with reptiles. A um, and B. Yes, yeah. Uh, a, to regenerate his missing arm. <laughs> okay, so we got that one right. Mm. Next. Uh, how did the Sandman acquire his ability to turn into living sand? An accident in an atomic lab- laboratory, experimental treatment to prison, exposure to radiation from an atomic test, or born with a mutant power? Which one do you think? I only know this from the film. Oh, well, that's probably wrong. For real? What was is the answer from the film on though? No. I don't think it is, is it? Why would it be in an atomic laboratory? See. <laughs> All right. To expose exposure to radiation from an atomic test. He was an accident. Uh, As are, you know, most people in the Marvel Universe. Uh, 380. What was the original source of Mysterio's powers? He's a movie special effects expert. B, he's a sorcerer. C, he's an alien with advanced technology. Or D, he's a mutant. Oh, I don't know what this answer is. He is a movie special effects expert. A. Spider-Man 2 game? Yep. Oh... I'm an 88, apparently. Oh, no, it's 7-5. Yeah. Go on, then. Uh, press entry if I don't. Yeah. Which of the following is not a member of the Ringmaster's Circus of Crime? Oh! The Clown, the Acrobat, the Green Gambone, or Princess Python. Yeah. You don't read enough Ditko, dude! <laughs> <laughs> it's crap. Um, it's not <laughs> crap. See, your education is slowly lacking in the art of Ditko. To be fair, if this was a question on Bendis' run on the Avengers, I would know nothing. But, but, but they're all... D? No, Princess Python's... Princess Python was in Alias. Was she? Yeah. Sure she was. Sure she was in Alias. You mean Madame Hydra? Or Python? Could have been. Viper? Uh, could have been. So, 7-5. I am the master. Beta. 382. Which villain was not given an alternate personality by an accident that also gave me superpowers? A. The Sandman. B. The Scorpion. C. The Lizard. Or D. The Green Goblin. Ooh. The Sandman. I'm going to go for there. He was a, he was a crook through and through. Unless you watch Sam Raimi's movies. Or, the, or read The Avengers. Or read The Avengers, yes. Or he is an Avenger. 383. Go on. Uh, who paid to send the original Spider Slayer robot after Spider-Man and even worked to controls Kingpin, Norman Osborn, J. John James, and Spencer Smythe? Well done! You're not going to tell us what the answer was. J.J. on his Well, thank you very much. Uh, okay, okay. That's very good, that's very good. 384. In which comic did Harry Osborn and Gwen Stacy first appear? A. The Amazing Fantasy 15. Is it really The Amazing Fantasy Issue 15? Isn't it just Amazing Fantasy? I thought it was Amazing Fantasy. Yeah, I thought it was. B. Amazing Spider-Man 31, 1965. C. Amazing Spider-Man 1, 1963. Or D. Amazing Spider-Man 25, 1965. Oh, it's either C or D. And I don't remember the issue number. Whether it was 20... What, what issue did we cover with the Molten Man that was his graduation? Oh, I know what it is, but I'm not telling you. Thanks very much. So... Oh, 
25 or 31, I'm going to go for B, 31. You want to press it again, because it went off. Yay! And that was a guess. Fair enough. I knew it was around, though, but we I'm never good with issue numbers. We covered 25, by the way. Did we? Yeah. Right. Which one of Spider-Man's nemesis once was a boarder at Aunt May's house, Dr. Octopus, the Vulture, Humbug, or the Black Fox? Oh. I'm, I'm leaning towards C and D, because I've never heard of either of them. Uh, I wouldn't if I were you, but it's your choice, dude. Oh, come on, you do know this. Do I? Yeah, who did she almost marry? Oh, right. The Vulture? No! <laughs> Dr. Octopus, absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, let's press that button one more time. Why didn't Spider-Man turn the Green Goblin over to the police when he was learned he was Norman Osborn? Because Osborn knew he was Peter Parker. B, because Osborn lost his memory of being the Green Goblin. C, because Osborn escaped. Or D, because Osborn was presumed dead. Um, B. I'm going to go for it. It's not letting me. Go on. Oh, it says question 586. Uh, um, yeah, one sec. No, okay. you're changing the number. Oh, sorry. One sec. What? Although 586 would be good because it's Ultimate Spider Man. You'd like them. Yeah, we're, we're going back here. Oh, go on then. Go back. 586. Yeah, to make it a bit what's his name for you, I will. Right, we're on 586 then. Uh, Ultimate Spider Man questions. That's 5-6. Start at 550. But we're on 586. Go back, go back to about 5.56 then. Let's skip a couple of pages. Well, I can't now because I've already set the answer. Oh, right. Okay, 5.56 then. Is this your question or my question? I'm pretty sure it's mine. All right, okay. No, it's me. It's player two. Player two's flashing. Right, okay. So, 5.56. Michael skipped a lot of questions. Who is Silvermane's son? 5.86. Who is Silvermane's son? A, the Kingpin. B, the Rose. C, Hammerhead. Or D, Blackwing. I'm going to go for D. Because the Rose is Kingpin's son, I think. Yay! How do we change? Don't know. I don't know how, I don't know how we change the numbers. We oh, must wait, have done here, it here, accidentally. No, here we go. 587. What oh, I'm doing 587. Uh, I, I don't know now. You've skipped. Five, five, where do they start again? I don't know where the ultimate Spider-Man questions start, to be honest with you. 587 is who is Michael Morbius. Oh, we're not doing that one yet. I'm... So which one do you want to put on? Oh, it doesn't matter. Do them randomly. 587. Yeah, okay. Um, here's my uh, supernatural vampire science vampire like superhumanized. B? Michael Morbius. He's a scientist. Are you sure about that? You watched the cartoons with me. Who's Morbius? He's a vampire, yeah. but he's a scientist. Yeah, well, what's the, don't go for the, the unobvious answer. Right, so I was right all along. You put me off the no, right answer. No, I didn't. He's a, vamp- he's a supernatural vampire. And I put A and it just told me the correct oh, answer Oh, no, he's B. a scientist with vampire-like superhuman attributes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. I knew I was right. Oh, uh, all right, then should we call it a day, Lola? Uh, so when we come to the end, the I have ten questions right and you have seven. Great. We'll do it again next time. Oh, okay. This then. can be our regular pre-credit sequence. A56-7W classified top secret subject is Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can be
make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Faster. I started to do that. I didn't actually. Oh dear me. Uh, Hello lovely people and welcome back to Hey Kids Comics. Um, What are we doing this week? Oh yeah, this week, I've completely forgotten, (laughs) we are finishing off our coverage of Darwin Cook's unabashed love letter to the DC Universe, New Frontier, by looking at the direct-to-DVD release movie. But first, oh, I suppose we better introduce ourselves, don't we? I'm Andrew Leyland. I'm Michael Leyland. Hello, Michael. Hello, Dad. How are you today? I'm okay. Are you sure? Tired. Tomorrow is, as we record this, is officially Michael's last day of school. Officially. Officially. I've tomorrow. Already had my last yeah, he's already been kicked out for uh, what was it? Burning down the gym. <laughs> oh no, that was Buffy the Vampire Slayer, wasn't it? Sorry. Yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm mixing you up with with Buffy, which isn't a bad thing, I suppose. Uh, no, tomorrow is his prom. Like. And can I just point out, I hate the idea of us doing prom. We didn't do prom when I was at school. This is just another thing we stole from somebody else just trying to make money. It's appalling. I call it that leavers thingy because I hate the word prom. Yeah, your leavers do. Mm. That's a bit better, isn't it? So as of tomorrow, Michael is no longer a high school student. No. You've taken your first step into a larger world. Only I'm going to go back to that high school... To do sixth form. Yeah. yeah, well, you know. But you won't be a high school student. No. You'll be a sixth form I can look student. down on those people. Yes, yeah, you, you can mock them. You can mock them in their monkey pants. Flush them in the toilet. No, don't do any of that. I don't encourage any of that behaviour. Okay. In fact, I fully expect you to carry on doing what you're doing in that regard. You see people picking on little people and you hit them. And then you get into trouble for doing it. <laughs> um, but enough of that drivel. That's not what we're here to talk about, is it? No, no. Uh, first of all, though, we have emails. I say emails. Singular. Yeah, it's feast or famine, isn't it? It is. With the emails. But it's a good one. We have one. Well, we have a couple of others, but we have one big email today. Did this one make you well up? This one made me laugh heartily. There's, you know, no, there's you know, no crying You know what kind of made me well up a bit? What? When, when I saw Scott Gunner's video of the fireworks on the... And I heard his voice, and I was like, I want to go back. <laughs> <laughs> See, I do that all the time when I listen to the show. Yeah. Especially when he posts the videos of Epcot's fireworks and stuff. Yeah. And you're like, I'd rather be there than here. <laughs> Because, like, we look out of our window... It's so raining. Know, it's raining. Like, I'm, sh- I'm shocked by that. Have you ever seen The Crow? No. I Can't mean. rain all the time. Obviously, the people who wrote that film never came here, <laughs> where it does rain all the time. Um, as you might have surmised from what Michael just said, our email is from Mr. Scott H. Gardner. What does the H stand for? Howdy. <laughs> Oh, I do like that. Oh, that's true. And he's wrote us a, an epic email that made me laugh. Uh, Deutschlanders ahoy! Is how he opens. Yeah, guten Morgen. Because it is well known that we are all Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> that is oh, what no, Scott no, has said on no, his show. That, we are all Nazis. That never happened. No, never he, happened, he has dude. said this on his show, so it must be true, yeah? And we will make you talk, you Americana swine! Was that good? That actually was not bad, was it? For you. For me, that was that was epic. <laughs> okay, right, fair enough. Hello, Mr. Gardner. How 
are you, my friends? We're fine, Scott. Thank you for asking. How are you? I'm doing fine, and I finally found a spur moment when I'm not running my mouth off my own show to send you some random thoughts-style feedback about yours. I feel awful that I don't write more, but it's as I said when you were visiting a while back. I normally listen whilst on my drives to and from work, and whilst I do often hear you say something I want to comment on or rebut, by the time I get where I'm going, I've completely forgotten whatever the heck it was. I take notes, but I don't want to die. I will, however... Michael barely does. Yeah, Michael barely takes notes in the car. I will, however, try harder in future to write more and be more timely and relevant and all that sort of thing. Well, we'd love it if you did. I wanted you to know that I loved Spider-Man Month. Thanks. Thanks very much. You know you guys continue to impress me with choosing topics that I kind of groan about when I hear them announced, but then end up really digging. Bravo! I particularly enjoyed and appreciated your coverage of the kid who collects Spider-Man from Amazing Spider-Man 248 and the death of Methuselah's grandmother from Amazing Spider-Man 400. (laughs) That would have been a much better title. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Kid is my single favourite Spider-Man story, and indeed one of my favourite comic book stories ever. It never fails to turn on my waterworks when I dig it back out and look at it, which I try to do every couple of years. I'm especially proud to have gotten a chance to tell the story's author, Roger Stern, how much I love this story face-to-face, and have him personally autograph my copy. That and Stern's The Avengers on Late Night with David Letterman remain some of the most prized comics in my collection. Well, look, the kid who collects Spider-Man is a bit of a gut puncher, isn't it? And um, there's been a lot of people recently on various different websites, haven't they? IGN and Comic Book Resources and stuff have been doing the top Spider-Man stories. Where we differed is we we made no effort to do a top ten. We did favourites. Because as can be expected on IGN's list and Comic Book Resources list, a lot of the same stories have come up, a lot of which... We have opinions on, don't we? On whether or not they should be on the list or not. But whatever. But what has been nice is that most of these lists have included the kid who collected Spider-Man. See, I thought that was an underrated gem. I didn't know so many people had such a high opinion of it. Because I don't know, maybe I just was out of the loop or I just wasn't keeping up to it. But I hadn't seen that story. Mentioned. Yeah, on a lot of top ten lists of Spider-Man stories. It's always... Amazing Fancy 15 and yeah. the Master Planner story and the night Gwen Stacy died and there's the list of stories that are, all, yeah, that are always there and Kid Who Collected Spider-Man always seems to bubble under yeah. but recently I've noticed that cracking a lot of people's top ten so it is nice that that is finally getting the recognition it deserves. <clears throat> Scott's emails continue. Likewise, the death of Aunt May is a moving tale as well. Not nearly on the same level as Kid, of course, but a solid tearjerker nonetheless. Maybe it's because I originally over ever picked up that issue so I'd be able to gloat that the crusty old video had finally going to go to the big nursing home in the sky. See, the story had been spoiled for me in some fanzine, so I just had to have it. Only, after reading it, something unthinkable happened. I found that I couldn't do it. I couldn't take pleasure in Aunt May's death. She went out in such a classy, tasteful, respectful and touching way that I just couldn't bring myself to be ugly about it, despite my world's famous long-standing extreme dislike for the character. I actually felt Peter Parker's pain. I felt really bad for him and guilty that I'd wished his dear aunt dead so many thousand times. Now she was. And it was causing him such grief. It is the rare and powerful comic indeed that can solicit such real emotion over completely made-up people on paper. Good stuff. Yeah, I think I did mention when we were talking about it, and I actually, I did actually tear up. The only other time a comic has made me cry. I mean, not... (laughs) Kind of cry. Yeah, yeah. But, like, got a little bit of a man tear. Was 
Peter Parker's eulogy in Ultimate Fallout. And yeah. I was chatting to Stephen Lacey last week when we recorded a fantastic cast, and he said it's one of those things, how much Bendis infuriates me as a writer, that every now and then you'll be reminded that he is actually really good. I think he is. When he, he'll pull something like that out the bag. Yeah. So, yeah, so it, 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 did, it did affect me the same way it did affect you. Reading the long guns annoying, though. Yes, well, yeah. Well, no, it's Avengers. See, I'm enjoying it, but they have one issue. They'll repeat a scene from another issue, but it'll take up 15 issues, pages of <laughs> See, So the actual issue itself is five, uh, 15 pages of something you've already read and five pages of a new story. Yeah. See, that's, his, his run on Daredevil is much lauded, and it is good, Yeah. and it is worth reading. But it's kind of like, I think it's about 45 issues, and it could have been done in 20. And it's got that really irritating thing. Was, did Michael Lark do the artwork for that? No, it was... No, it wasn't David Starlet. Mark. Oh, Alex Maleev? Yes. Right. Yes. And it's got that really irritating repeated panels thing. Mm. Like an entire page will be repeated panels or zoomed in reason, yeah. and pulled out. And it's just like, look, if you can't be bothered drawing a page, dude... Whereas when I was reading these like Spider Woman stuff, the art's really good in that. Is it? Yeah. And he doesn't do any repeated panel stuff, does he? No. No, that's fair enough. Scott continues, and likewise, I prize that particular issue for much the same reason as 248, because the artist, Mark Bagley, appeared once, seemingly at random and out of the blue, at a rinky dink local mall near where I lived at the time in the middle of You Gotta Be Lost or something, Georgia. <laughs> oh, you just made the wife laugh as well, Scott. It was totally surreal and bizarre to see this well-known and popular artist at such a venue, but totally cool nonetheless. I got him to sign Amazing Spider-Man 400 for me and we chit-chatted about it for a bit. He revealed that this issue was a personal favourite of his. He was very diplomatic about May's resurrection too, but it was very apparent that he wasn't crazy about the idea. Neither was I, as you can well imagine. But what has always bugged me even more is that everybody wants to lay the blame for that misstep at the feet of my boy John Byrne. As it turns out, Byrne didn't even work on the interiors of the two issues that brought her back. Sure, he provided the cover to Peter Parker's Spider-Man 97, but can that really be the reason collective fandom misremembers him as the culprit behind this heinous crime? I don't know. But unless there was some behind-the-scenes drama going on that I'm not aware of, it looks like this should fall more squarely on Mackie and the others that actually wrote and drew the darn thing, and the continuation in Spectacular 263. Now, in fairness, I have seen it written that Byrne did want her back, but again, he didn't work on the issues in which the actual resurrection took place. That distinction is enough to get him off the hook, as far as I'm concerned. Um, now, I see, that's difficult. I tried to source this because I'm certain that I remember him mentioning that that was his idea on his website, but at the moment, his website is you have to be a member to read it. He's what? locked it down. What's that? John Byrne's website. Yeah, I so, on that anyway. so you, but you now have to be a member. I don't think I'm a member. Oh, I used right. to just browse, and I'm, I'm like, really? So, so mm. is he that popular? Well, I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, but yeah, as credited, he's not credited with that. Byrne has said in his reboot, he just wanted Peter Parker to wake up mm. and be 16 years old again, with no explanation. And they would do a year's worth of stories like that, and slowly Peter would figure out that something was wrong, and he would find out what has changed reality or something at the end of a year, but then status quo would remain the same. Okay. Um, I think that's a fascinating idea, because it would have meant well, no need for Ultimate Spider-Man. And wouldn't it not have like, annoyed a lot of readers, though? Oh, yeah, it would have really annoyed a lot of readers. Yeah. 
<laughs> Probably, but, you know, never mind. Bagley had zero problem ripping me for wearing my ancient and well-loved Amazing Spider-Man 363 cover t-shirt. Good-naturedly, of course. Enjoying night sweats or whatever. Again, wasn't interested, but digging it. I really like the music used for part one. Golden Thor's Batman Forever theme is my personal favourite of the live-action Batflex, and Chris Holland's version kicks all the butt. Yes, I, I like Golden Thor's score for Batman Forever. Okay. And Chris Holland's version. If you've not been on Chris Holland's website... He has electric guitar versions of the theme from Star Trek and Superman as well, so you may want to go and check that out. And uh, we appreciate you saying you like them, even when we're covering stuff you're not interested in. Just to repair the favour, I wasn't interested in King Kong Month, even though I like King Kong. Yeah, they did a month about King Kong, and I was like, I can understand a show about King Kong, but But King Kong Month? month? But I ended up enjoying all of them. Maybe maybe people are like, well, I, I, I understand. New Frontier, but New Frontier month. Well, we've not done a month on it. We've only done two weeks and change, really. Well, kind of, ish. Um, So you're probably wondering about the title of this rambling missive, right? Which was Everything Comes Back to Disney. Yeah. In case I didn't read the title of his his email. I'm crap at this. I'm so professional. (laughs) Okay. In the latest episode I've listened to, and you know I was going to compliment you on the fact that yours is the only podcast that I both listen to every episode of, and I'm consistently up to date with, but then when I went to your website I saw you had a new episode up. Bastards. Anyhow, in the latest one I've listened to, Nights in White Satin Part 2, Michael did a little Richard (laughs) Nixon, I am not a crook, impersonation, and I suddenly saw my opportunity, at last, to impress you with my incredibly awesome Disney trivia knowledge. As it turns out, this is actually one of my very favourites to lay on people. So here goes. I'll just scroll down so I can read the whole thing. Lots of folk know the famous, or infamous if you prefer, I am not a crook line, but I often wonder how many of them, especially young people like Michael, know the backstory. Or more importantly, the setting. This bit of dialogue was spoken by Nixon on November 17th, 1973, in which he attempted to defend himself at a televised press briefing while deeply embroiled in the Watergate scandal, a scandal that would eventually cause him to resign from the presidency. Yeah, yeah, you're saying, I know all of that, what's your point? Well, did you know that that speech was delivered from none other than the ballroom of the Americas in the contemporary resort at your recent vacation destination of Walt Disney World? Yep, it's true. In fact, the connections between Disney and our 37th president are quite strong, including Walt's personal friendship with Dick. I myself even have a Kevin Bacon-style connection with all of this, as it was Nixon, his wife and kids, whom Walt hosted at the ribbon-cutting ceremony for the first daily operating, wait for it, monorail, in the Western Hemisphere at Disneyland in 1959. And of course, yours truly has taken one or two of those out for a spin in my time. So the lesson for today is that while Michael Bailey may claim it all goes back to Superman, you and I know it really all goes back to Disney. Sorry for the novel. No, don't worry. We loved it. Given that yours is the only substantial email we've got today, we were quite happy to have a novel. Keep up the excellent show, fellas. It really is the top of my stat list every week. Glad you're digging the two large t-shirts. Hug the family from me. Your cousin in the colony, Scott H. Gardner. Co-host of that thing with that other guy. (laughs) I don't have to mention Scott is 50% of two true freaks, do I? No. And they do loads of stuff. Comics Monthly Monday, Star Wars Monthly Monday, mm. Star Trek Monthly Monday, Funny Book Underbelly, that Back I to the Bins. That that Chris does that on his own with a mate called Johnny Bueno. It, you'd like that. Will I? It's just underground comics. Okay. Robert Crumb and stuff that's not mainstream. Okay. I think that Because I'm such a hipster like that. Yes, you are. Well, you're not a hipster. <laughs> hipsters. I was going to say a naughty word, but I caught myself just... Hipsters, I'll see you next Tuesdays. Are they? Yes, indeed. But oh. you're not that. Okay. 
Uh, P.S. Have your people call my people. I presume that is a reference to Scott's uh, generous offer to host old episodes of this show. His lawyers and my lawyers are hammering out an agreement even as we speak. Aren't they, Michael? And what's that agreement? Yeah, okay, I think we'll do it. <laughs> All right, no, no, no. We're hammering out how often you get to go to Disneyland on his money. Oh, right. That's what the lawyers are currently discussing. Oh, right. Yeah. Do we get good lawyers? Uh, yeah, we've got excellent lawyers. We've got the best. We've got Johnny Cochran, dude. Okay. He was something to do with O.J. Simpson. All right. Okay. P.P.S. You know I can't even get one out in this shirt you sent, right? <laughs> Sucks too, because sexy bitch pink is totally my colour. <laughs> what shirt? Um, when we were in Florida, yeah. we noticed that Scott and I have very similar favourite pastimes, which is Spot the Cool T-shirt. Yeah. And most of the t-shirts that we really, really like were the covers of old comics. You've got a Silver Surfer one yeah. that is the cover of an old comic. And a lot of them were quite iconic covers. Amazing Spider-Man 100, which is an iconic image. Well, right? yeah, yeah, but, that, but that's every now and again we would see one that was a completely random... Like I saw a cover of Detective Comics that was from just before... Uh, Detective Comics 526 where Batman's in like a hall of mirrors type thing mm. and it's a great cover but you're like well, I wonder what made them put that on a t-shirt yeah and before we went to Florida we saw a Marvel Comics Star Wars cover from around 18 or 19 a Carmine Infantino cover yeah on a t-shirt okay and Scott was always going on about I love those I love those kinds of t-shirts with actual covers on them and um, when we came home we were in HMN and your mum was like oh go on get it in and I was like well it's pink for a start he's not going to wear a pink shirt men don't wear pink that's not me being homophobic men can't pull off pink I don't care what sexual orientation you are so I just say my Iron Man t-shirt's purple like it's purple before. it's not pink I wouldn't have never have bought you a pink t-shirt I would not do that to you it's purple yes it's purple um, and also it's only available in women's and I've actually seen a woman around town wearing one yeah so that was quite cute so you bought him a pink so but your mum said well go and send it him anywhere because either he can fold it up and put it in a, a frame and hang it on the wall or whatever, so at least he's got one because these may never make it over to America I don't know yeah. or he can just hang it on a hanger and have it in his, his little den or something or maybe his wife will wear it for him I don't know so your mum said buy it for him and we sent it over to him and he finally got it. So that's the t-shirt that we're referring to. Okay. Does that clear it all up? Yes. I, I wear my t-shirt on like an almost daily basis sometimes. Which one? My two three weeks t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. It'll be made up. You know what we should do? Yeah. When we officially join the Two True Freaks Network for our classic episode. Oh yeah. Classic. How self-aggrandizing is that? Old. Yeah, uh, yeah, old. What we should, yeah, do you really want to go back and listen to them when we were stiff and didn't know what to do behind the camera and I didn't know how to use Audacity? Before I wasn't stiff. Oh. Oh, well, I don't know what you mean by that. Anyway, you know how totally, like, Yeah, we should totally get the two, three freaks t shirts, put them on, and I should put my fedora on, and you should put your cowboy hat on, and we should take a photo for the, for the first episode that we re upload. That should be the image. Okay. <laughs> I'll be down with that. Alright. Excellent. Thanks now for people it. know what we look like. Yeah. 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 We were trying to maintain a, a level of secret identity and we fail miserably there, don't we? And, and then Scott turned around and gone, Yonk, that's a picture of you. Yeah. Excellent. Anyway, thank you very much, Scott. Should have put plastic bags on our head. We should have done Paper should've. bags, even. Yeah. We really enjoyed that. Well, like a question mark drawn on it. Our next email, because we didn't get any this week. One of our listeners felt very sorry for us. Yeah. Our next email is from a listener called Angela Leyland, which means we have women listeners. Yeah. How excellent is that? Dudders. <laughs> this email says, 
I think your podcast is well good, and I think your singing is well good too. Oh, well, thank you very much, Angela. I appreciate that wholeheartedly. <laughs> and then Angela sent us another email, which I thought was fantastic. Oh, and your podcast on Night's End was well good too. Well, thank you very much. We, we appreciate your patronage, Angela. Thank you very much for sending us those emails. Oh, dear me. Um, I think we should just have a quick break, though, while Michael recovers from the fact that we received emails from his mum. No, is there emails of Duddus? What's it Because Because Scott was the only person who emailed in this week. We'll plug one of his shows, him and Chris, and uh, we'll be right back. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman. Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at two truefreaks.libson.com. And we're back. Well, I'm back. Michael's busy reading his mail. Mm. Real mail and everything came in an envelope. How exciting is that? School. Um, last week, Michael and I sat down. Did we not? We did. And we watched the Justice League New Frontier movie. Um, it wasn't called Justice League New Frontier, was it? The cartoon, the book. The book was called DC The New Frontier. Yes. The comic, the film, the DVD release was called Justice League The New Frontier. Oh, Maybe they thought it would sell better yeah, if it was the Justice League. Um, it was a direct-to-DVD release running 71 minutes and 46 seconds. Thought you, you were prisoners. I rock me, don't I? I timed that to the second while we were watching it. Wikipedia. Uh, no, I, when you play it on the PlayStation, it tells you how long it is. Alright. <laughs> no, I didn't go to any real trouble or anything. It was released in the United States on February 26, 2008. In true Warner Brothers fashion, this has not been released in the UK, although it was released on the defunct HD DVD format, rather than be released over here so we could watch it. So I don't feel bad about not giving Warners any of my money. If they can't be asked releasing stuff in my country, I can't be asked giving them my hard-earned. Good on you. Simple stuff. Stick it to the man. Stick it, yeah, don't stuff the no, man. No, don't stuff the man. No, don't we, 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 we don't like that. We don't stuff men. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with people that do. Just getting it out there. I'm very I'm liberal Tom in my attitude towards all that stuff. Oh, I, well, allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. The guy's been married three times or twice or whatever. Allegedly. <laughs> Okay, Tom Cruise has got Scientology lawyers behind him. I ain't doing anyone here, man. Oh, those aliens are going to God, shut up! <laughs> Stop oh. it! Stop! 
Stop it! <laughs> Stop it now! The movie was written by Stan Burke. Shut up! <laughs> The movie was written by Stan Berkowitz from Cook's graphic novel and directed by David Bullock. It has a pretty stellar voice cast, didn't it? Mm-hmm. All things considered. Uh, Angel himself, Buffy the Vampire Slayer's David Buddy and Az, starred as Hal Jordan, Green Lantern. Robocop's creator Miguel Ferrer was John, John's, John Jones, the Martian Manhunter. One-time Spider-Man, Neil Patrick Harris, now probably better known for me, Dr. Horrible, was oh, um, Barry oh, Allen. The flat or Barney Stinson, yeah. Agent Dale Cooper himself, Kyle McClackland, was Clark Kent Superman. And in a wonderful piece of stunt casting, Lucy Lawless was Wonder Woman. That was Dale Cooper. That was Agent Dale Cooper, yeah, was Superman. Okay. And by a funny twist of fate, when I was just channel surfing before you got in, mm-hmm. he was on How I Met Your Mother. Cool. With Neil Patrick Harris. He is my favourite character in Twin Peaks. Um, I liked Dale Cooper. Yeah. Have you watched all of Twin Peaks? No, we're, we're just seeing the first few episodes of season two. Right. Ooh, that's when it starts going downhill. Is it? Yeah, after they resolved the whole who murdered Laura Palmer thing. It's not thing. been resolved yet. Oh, you've not got to that point yet. Okay, fair enough. Um, Miguel Ferrer, who we just mentioned, played Johns, and I just like saying John Johns, is a good friend of Mark Hamill and Bill Moomy, and an avid comics fan, as is Phil Morris as King Faraday, who played John Johns on Smallville. Ah. There you go. It's all interconnected, isn't it? Is. It's the fundamental interconnectedness of all things, as Douglas Adams would have it. Jeremy Sisto played Batman. James Arnold Taylor, better known as Obi-Wan on Clone Wars, was Captain Cold. James Arnold Taylor? James Arnold Taylor. I don't Taylor. think he's banging on about him. I think he's a Ratchet and Clank. He, he has done one of the Ratchet and Clank monsters, yes. Right. It's very interesting how interconnected all these voice artists are. Mm. Uh, Kevin Smith's been interviewing loads of people for his new Batman, Fat Man podcast. Yeah. And he's just interviewed Tara Strong, who played Batgirl yeah. on the animated Batman series. And she was Bubbles on Powerpuff Girls, and she was Chucky in uh, Rugrats, and she's bed 10. So it's, it is all fundamentally interconnected. Didn't... Joe Keller dude um, Ben 10 as well yes he's, he's part of Man of Action uh, which is the people which is who, Men of Action is it Men of Action no it's Man of Action oh, right. isn't it? well, there's Several four people. of them isn't there yeah. yeah the only scene of the movie is essentially what Superman learns from the film that Batman sends to him in the comic and it's de- depicted rather wonderfully through a pastiche mm. of the actual comic books isn't it over the um, in the pre-credit sequence my only problem with the pre-credit sequence is it actually spelled out the entire plot of the film for you, didn't it? Well, yeah, whereas in the comic it's much later on. Yeah, whereas this has some Star Wars-style narration yeah. explaining who the centre was and where he came from and what he was doing here before the credits rolled. Well, maybe it's straight to DVD stuff so for you smarter audience who read comics. Well, see, I would argue that they're aimed at the comic book audience. Would that say that they're aimed for, like, children or something? No, not PG-13s. I think they're aimed at teens and above. And I would imagine that they're, they're hoping you will have some familiarity with what they're No, they must be hoping, there's a lot of it in there which Yeah, like... that isn't spelled out in terms of... I mean, that was a bit on the nose, I thought. Uh, the only credits are really good, with another of those Art Deco stylized run through the opening chapters of the book with allusions to our band's death and the red skirt. The score by Kevin Man- Manthea... Manthe? Manthe? Manthe. Uh, is that how you pronounce that? It's very good for the, the opening credits, being neither a heroic march like John Williams, but it, was ne- it wasn't a tedious constant thoom <laughs> like Hans Zimmer's work on Dark Knight. <laughs> uh, the origin of The Flash and a brief look at the Green Lantern Court are also in the credits, as well as various animated presentations of what were the comic book cover. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we quite liked the credits. 
Because you, you, it was you that said these look like they've just been scanned in, don't they? Yeah. Straight from the that. comics. So there's a lot there's, of that. The animation itself wasn't very Darwin Cook, but the opening credits. There was Darwin were. Cook isms in it, but yeah. yeah, the opening credits were very Cook. As opposed to the rest, which yeah. is just a. Every now and again, you got a bit of a flash of Darwin Cook, particularly when Martian Manhunter attacks after King Faraday's death. Yeah. That was straight from the comics, wasn't it? Because yeah. you said it looked traced. The actual image of the Martian Manhunter. Some, some of it were. Yeah. Looked like it was, yeah. Right. Uh, the movie opens straight into Korea in July 27th, 1953, so we've lost all of the loser stuff, which is sad. The backup with a political background with yeah. Batman and Superman. Yeah, well, it's an understandable edit. It loses all of Chapter 1, and a lot of Chapter 2 was actually depicted in the, the credits. Parts of it. Yeah, we're actually underscored over the credits. Yeah, Michael's mentioned the political subtext is ripped from yeah. the, the animated movie, isn't it? It's, it's just not there. There's a couple it's of little everything scenes. in the comic. Yeah, it's, I think you can argue a case that without the political subtext to the film that is in the comics, the movie is a much less substantial meal. It's more of an action film. Yeah, and it works on that level. Yeah. It works as an action film, but without the, the context of the time, it has none of the gravitas of the comic to book. Watchmen, the comic, and the yeah, film. Yeah, exactly. Exactly similar to Watchmen. Yeah. Very good. Uh, the opening is the battle between the Korean pilots and Hal and Ace Morgan, and it's pretty decently transcribed from the comic. Some of the dialogue is a bit more on the nose than the comics, but one of the advantages Suffering of the comics... Suffering Susan. Well, I don't mind that. Yeah. I quite like Suffering Susan. Um... See, the, advan- the comic had the advantage of being able to do internal monologues, which you yeah. can't really do in the oh, movie. As a voiceover. Yeah, but not as well. And see, the problem with doing it as a voiceover in New Frontier is you would have to keep switching between voiceovers. Between voiceovers. Yeah. Which in a comic works fine. If you know who it is. Yeah, well, the pictures normally tell you who it is. Yeah. But in the film, traditional noir narration follows the point of view of one person. Doesn't it? Or is it several on that? Whereas in New Frontier, you're looking at several different people's point of view. Yeah. So it wouldn't have worked as. So I can understand why they locked it off. Uh, Hal clocking the Korean soldier is still funny. Although, did you notice that he was cleaning his gun in instead the film instead of having a cheeky fag? And and there wasn't the rest of the squad shooting at him. Yes. There wasn't none of that was there. in the helicopter. Yeah. None of that was in. Um, they made no concessions to Hal blowing the guy's head off, though. No. That was. I wouldn't say it was violent because it was all off camera but it was quite bloody it, it was very obvious yeah what he'd done mm. I quite liked that I thought they did that quite well maybe that's why he got his PG-13 yeah, just that one possible. bit yeah Borean Az is actually a really good fit for Hal yeah I'll be honest my man crush Nathan Fillion is uh, as big as anybody's he's a bit chubby now though but well no even in voiceover I actually think Borean Az is a better fit I actually think he could have pulled off being Green Lantern in a movie. Rather than Deadpool. Yeah. And, and I, I'm one of the few people on the planet who likes the Green Lantern movie. I really did. I didn't think it was as awful as everyone says it is, but that, that's a podcast for another time, I suppose. You didn't think it was awful as it was. <laughs> oh, you have no defence against that, well done. Um, Doctor Odell's a lot fatter in the film. Uh, yeah. But John's introduction was pretty much lifted verbatim. Maybe, maybe comic book fat people are funny. Maybe they are. Yeah, he still died, though. <laughs> I hated that Superman's introduction was with glowing red eyes. <laughs> Absolutely loathed that. We mentioned it in the comics. 
that it's such done once an overplayed visual yeah. in current comics and it's done once in the comic books or the miniseries or whatever you want to call it the graphic novel the, the absolute right near the end at which point I felt Cook had earned the right to do it because he hadn't had it all the time it hadn't become tedious and he does it the once well his eyes were squinted most of the time yeah he was, a, he was doing a Jerry Siegel pasht Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster pasht each wasn't yeah. he so the fact that he introduced with glowing eyes really did annoy me to be honest with you. Um, Lucy Lawless Lucrucia herself from Spartacus and what was her name in um, Battlestar Galactica was she that? Yes, Lucy Lawless is in Battlestar. She's one of the Cylons. Is she? Yeah, she has a main part. Diane, Diana, was she? In Battlestar Galactica. But probably, better known as Xena, warrior yeah. princess, uh, is pretty excellent as Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. There is a time, you know, back in the mid-90s where she would have made a pretty decent live-action Wonder Woman. Well, because of Xena. But that's the point. Uh, she probably wouldn't have done it for that reason. Mm. Because they're very similar. Yeah. So it would have been a kind of career. Could you just call it Diana Warrior Princess? Yeah. It's somewhere essentially that's what Xena was. Yeah. Put her in red and blue. Essentially she was Wonder Woman. Uh, Kyle McLachlan's pretty good as Superman. What did you think of Agent Dale Cooper as Superman? I didn't know he was. No, no it doesn't matter whether you knew who the actor was. Did you think his portrayal was good? Yeah. He was alright, wasn't he? He was decent. He doesn't really have a lot to do. Not really. Tim Daly's still my preferred animated Superman. Mm. Followed by Bud Collier. The guy who did his voice in the old Fleischer cartoons. Yeah. He had a very deep baritone. But he changed it slightly for Park Kent. I heard he said, this is a job for a Superman. And he'd do all of that. Much better than me, because he's a trained actor. Whereas I'm not. No. <laughs> but I am a trained singer. Uh, well, <laughs> trained to be bad. Yeah. It's hip to be square. Um, Superman's pretty good animation-wise as well. Mm. He looks pretty damn good. Uh, Wonder Woman lacks Cook's prettiness, for want of a better word. It's kind of hard to explain. He doesn't make Wonder Woman as pretty as, say, Lois. Yeah. Or Carol Ferris. But she's not butch. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. She still looks like a woman. She still looks like a woman. But not as dyke But not... (laughs) I can't believe you went there. (laughs) Oh, God. Not, not as manly. God, yes, that's much better. Very <laughs> Shall good. we say that again? No, no, it's fine. It's okay. She was still statuesque. Yeah. And buxom. But her face was a lot harder. I don't wish to say <laughs> what you said, so we're going to move swiftly on. Um, there's a newspaper cover dated August 25th, 1954, which is straight out of the comics. Mm-hmm. The... Um, the early 50s one. Uh, my, the one we watched appeared to be a screener copy, didn't it? Did it? Because it, it kept going black and white oh, yeah. at various points throughout the movie. I think it did it three or four times. Thanks Oddly, to our friend Tor. Yeah, thanks to our friend Tor, yes. Oddly, do you not think some of those things look better in black and white? They do, yeah. It actually suited it. Yeah. Some of them. The, the John John's bit. Yeah, the yeah. John John's detective noir bit. It went black and white at the point where John decides to become a detective and that stuff looked cool in black and white mm. it looked like 1940s noir should look um, we then moved to Gotham the scene of John watching TV is lifted directly out of the comic replete with a cameo from Bugs Bunny only without the cool bit of him drawing on the walls yeah they didn't have any of that no. but that, I thought that was quite a direct lift and that was quite good in Metropolis there's an expository scene between Superman and Lois that isn't in the comic 
Which is the most political it gets. Yes, which is as political it gets as one line of dialogue, isn't that? Yeah. About um, the disbanding of various heroes who weren't, who won't turn themselves in to the government, and that's it. Which wasn't explained in the beginning. No, not really. And it's, it's so it's kind of glossed over. Um, it sets up Superman's role in the conclusion of the story. Lois isn't as hard ass in the comic as she is. In the film, sorry, she isn't a comic, is she? No. She's much more akin to the Lois of the animated series than the Lois of the, the so comic book. Sue Storm in the uh, film. No, well, she's not really in the film enough. They've essentially took Lois's part out, haven't they? Well, you put more Batman in there. Yeah, well, then, then beefed up Batman's part, yeah. Um, again, this was the scene that was most egregious for me, because it's not in the comics, but it's added just for the film. And by robbing and simplifying the political subtext, the story loses a lot of its bite. Yeah. And its I don't think it's no more evidence than in this bit, where they, they kind of dance around the red scur and the rounding up of superheroes and making them sign the registration act and all that stuff. But Just to shoehorn it in. Yeah, it? just to say, well, we've made mention of it, but we're just moving on there. Yeah. And that was, that was pretty much it. After that... We go straight to Vegas, um, where you noticed, and this completely passed me by, while there was a banner for the boxing match that was going on, yeah. which is pretty much all of the boxing match you get to see in the film, isn't it? Wildcat is fighting Cook, mm-hmm. not Cassius Clay. You but spotted he that. still looks like him, though. Yes, he does. Mm. So I, I do wonder if they just couldn't get the clearance to use his name. So they just decided to So they just, they'll just reference Darwin Cook, yeah. yeah. I mean, I can't imagine... So how did the comic get it, but the film didn't? I don't know, because later on, you pointed out as well, Scientific American, which was a real, and is still a real magazine, is, um, what is it in the film? Scientist Weekly or something, isn't it? Scientist Journal or something like that. So they didn't get clearance for that. It may just be a case of they would have had to pay money. And they just thought, screw it. Because of it being a film. Yeah, because that would cut into the profit margin of the film. Yeah. So they just thought, oh, forget it, can't be bothered and all that. Um, this, like I said, The Flash will watch a bit of this boxing match on TV. Yeah. But we don't get any of the Wildcats fight with Cassius Clay slash Darwin Cook. Which is unfortunate, because I love that bit in the book. Hal and Ace are in Vegas just having some downtime rather than watching the fight, mm. aren't they? Unless they went and saw the fight. Uh, that's, why you, that's why you go to Vegas some yeah. downtime. Downtime on the way to fer- Ferris Aircraft, weren't they? Mm. Uh, Neil Patrick Harris is fantastic as Barry Allen. Mm-hmm. He really does suit the youthful superhero stuff, doesn't and he? He was great Spider-Man. as Spider-Man. Yeah. He was, and he's really good in this as The Flash. I really liked him. I'd like him to get a permanent gig doing something like this. Yeah. Because he's really good at it. I love seeing the costume come out of the ring in the movie because they didn't do any of that in the comics and I wish they'd done well, that in the, the old TV so. show yeah they, they did it's in the page that's in the absolute that isn't in the miniseries isn't it yeah yeah. I'd like to do it in the TV show but they never did would it not have been harder yeah it would have been cool though it's 90s it would have been badly animated oh shut Babylon 5 graphics uh, there's nothing graphics. wrong with Babylon 5's graphics uh, the scene of the flash running to Vegas shut up <laughs> is, is ripped straight from the comic book yeah. And doing very well. Not as cool. Did you not think? The, the break in the sound barrier wasn't as cool, man. Oh, right. See, I like that scene. I thought that was quite good. I, I did expect to hear Shirley Walker's music come in. Well, yeah, and Shirley Walker's dead, I suppose. Although she used that theme in Superman the Animated Series. When the Flash shows up, 
Yeah. In Superman the Animated Series, she references the old Flash TV show thing. When he's running. Which I thought was quite cute. Bruce Wayne and Selena Kyle are in Vegas. Presumably to watch the boxing match. Presumably. But we don't see the Batman just yet. We get him all nude Yeah. The Flash, Captain Cold guy fight is pretty much straight from the comic with one noticeable change at the end which we'll get to in a minute although the Flash is referred to as super fast guy yeah. which sounds like it should be a name from the Japanese team from Final Crisis yeah <laughs> which I thought was quite good super, super fast guy style. yeah that would be really good um, there's a big change from the comic at the end of the Flash Captain Cold battle everything else well, there's is no science in it you know, there is but it's not as cool he obviously had to work it all out for his but we don't hear him do any of that, so that's not as cool, I suppose. But it is all in there. But the big change comes at the end of the battle. Captain Cold has been taken over by the centre after he's captured. And it has to be said, his capture isn't quite as cool in the film. It's a fun bit, though. Oh, and Barry purposely freezes him in the film, doesn't he? Isn't yes. It, isn't it just malfunction in the comic? Whereas yes. In the film, he purposely does he it. He purposely does it, yeah. Whereas in the film, it's a malfunction. Um, it's further proof that a live action or animated Flash movie could be really cool hmm. if they do it properly. properly. I think. Yeah, well. Yeah, Warner Brothers continue to stumble in this. We haven't even had a direct to DVD Flash movie. Nope. I mean, the very least, why don't. I would love to see a direct to DVD. Flash animated movie of what would have been the second season premiere of the TV show. You get John Wesley shit back as the Flash because age doesn't matter in animation. And you get all the actors back who played the Trickster and the Mirror Master and Captain Cold and they were going to introduce the Weather Wizard according to Mark Hamill. And so that, get Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo back in to write it and so this is what the second season premiere of The Flash would have been like. Yeah, but Warner Brothers has characters that it doesn't know what to do with. Following this, Hal and Ace just go straight to Ferris. And again, the dialogue's a lot more obvious than in the comics. The actors do a good job selling it, though. Mm. I think Bory and Al's his most valuable player in this. I think yeah. he's, he's really quite <laughs> good as Hal Jordan. Well, yeah, it is. We mentioned before that the comic is Hal Jordan's story. And King oh, Faraday's story with John Barry Hall Allen well. and John Johns. Yeah, they're the, mostly Hallens. Yeah, but the, the movie they skewer the perspective so that it is mostly John John Johns. Uh, Hal Jordan. Yeah, it's his story in the cartoon, whereas it's a lot of different stories in the uh, the comic book. John watches a movie that makes him want to be a detective, as in the film, and Hal as in the film, as in the comic. And Hal and Carol do their job interview. Carol, did you not think Carol's just not as cute? in the film is she I didn't notice did you know the animation's very good but it loses some of Darwin Cook's craftsmanship yeah if you look at the pages in the comic where Hal and Carol are essentially flirting and he does an exceptionally good job of carrying that across from the page to the reader that she's flirting with him and he's flirting with her and it's all candles and lowered eyes and he's looking at her all through his eyelids and she's doing the twirling of her thing. None of that's in the film. You don't get that mm. in the film. It's just not as well handled. And Carol's face in the comic is that big round, cute thing with big eyes and pointy <laughs> chin. And they try, they really do try to ape it but in it the film. it in movement. Yeah. Or, or the artist just wasn't as good as yeah. him. So I don't know whether why they couldn't get Cook to, to animate it, I don't know. Um, the biggest jump in the, the film happens here. Suddenly, John is a detective, he isn't was, he? He was suddenly a detective. But there was the 
the thing with the comic was there was the element of time passing. Yeah. Which they did quite a lot in the comic, and so you got used to it. And they would worry, got confused, and they would actually say, this is now 1957, this is now 1958. The film did very little of that. It just went straight. So suddenly, John's like, I will be a detective, and the next thing, he's a detective. Like Roger. Yeah, there's no feeling of him, the passage of time. Everything could have happened in a week. Yeah. Basically, even though they do occasionally do captions, this was 1947, this was blah, 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 blah. It's not as effective as in the comic book. So that felt like a bit of a jump. He's also working with Slamblot Bradley, and they're still investigating the same kidnapping that they investigated in the comic. But the film made no mention of the fact that Slam Bradley's a PI, did it? The film's implication was he was John's partner. Yeah. And that was it. There was no mention that he was a private investigator Not that was helping John with the case. Was Sam's partner? Oh, whatever. Yeah, that they were Starsky and Hutch essentially. Yeah. Mawson Lewis, Cagney and Lacey, whatever. But that's implied in the film. There's no mention that he's a PI who's helping John on this case. So it doesn't matter. But a bit of clarification, one way or another, would be It's more obvious said. in the film that he gets his hunches from his psychic powers. Yes. That's that's something that's heavily implied in the comic, and you have to kind of work that out yourself. Which is another example of the comic not spelling everything Subtlety. out for you. Yeah, subtlety that just goes out the window when you turn it into a direct-to-DVD animated movie. Mm. Unfortunately, um, it has to be said the Batman fight scene in the movie is awesome. Yeah, it was pretty damn good. Again, our copy went black and white here, but again, it looked better in black and white. Batman looked cool in black and white, didn't he? Yeah. It just looks so brilliant. In the comics, the main crook is just babbling about the centre deliriously. Mm. Whereas here, like Captain Cold earlier, he gets possessed by the centre. Yeah. So again... You know, do you remember when we used to have the PlayStation 2 down here and we watched Region 2 films and in Region 2 would be black and white? Yes. A lot of it was cool and then we watched it in colour and it wasn't It just didn't cool. have the same effect. Yeah, yeah the black and white parts of this didn't hurt it. In fact, it seemed to be that they changed at just the right minutes. Yeah. There's a bit where, I don't know if we mentioned it in my notes, but there's a bit where John's watching TV. It must be earlier than this when he's watching the TV to learn about humanity, and it went black and white. And it fitted really well, because the black and white TV. And it was like, well, they've actually thought about where to turn it black and white. Oh, thank you very much. Um, there's a lot as well of fed to blacks in it. Did you notice? Like it was on Like TV. when you watch over here... If you get an American television show airing on the BBC, mm-hmm. the fades to blacks are quite noticeable because the BBC doesn't have adverts. Or you watch it on DVD or whatever. Yeah. And it did feel like this was prepped for being on TV. Like you say, it just felt like there were places to put advertisements in. Yeah. I don't know if it's ever heard on TV in America. Would it err in a 90-minute time slot with adverts or would they trim it? Cartoon network. Yeah. I know some of them have earned on TV in America. Mm. I don't think they ever have over here. Have Probably they? not, no. But Mask of the Phantasm has been on TV over here. Yeah. That's the only one I can recall ever watching on television. The, wasn't the Mr. Freeze one on TV? Sub-Zero may have been on TV, yeah. I don't think Batman Return of the Joker's ever heard on TV over here on a regular channel. Would the other two not have been on because they were part of the animated series? They may have been. They may have been part of the animated series package when they bought it. Mm. But the others followed later, didn't they? Yeah. But ITV showed Batman Beyond, didn't they? Yeah. Oh, no, called Batman of the Future over here because we're too stupid to figure out what it that it means he's in the future. Duh. License reviews. Yeah, so. <clears throat> anyway, after fading back in, we're suddenly deep into Hal's training schedule at Ferris. Flag is introduced and they instantly take a dislike to each other. Then Was there's a scene. Seen it earlier. Yeah, this is it for Flag. Flag's very. Flag's 
contribution to the story is excised considerably from the comic book, isn't it? Yeah. Because Suicide Squad aren't in it, so the loser's stuff isn't in it, mm-hmm. so Flag's connection to the island is completely removed. So none of that's in the film. Um, they instantly don't like each other. Then there's a scene that isn't in the book of Carol taking Hal to the heart of Ferris Ur and introducing him to King Faraday. In the book, Flag does all of that. Yeah. Which made a lot more sense in the book because he's the military guy. He's the guy in charge. Carol's not in charge of Operation Flying Cloud. She's in charge. She's in charge of Ferris Ur. They're using Ferris Ur as the base for this covert operation to reach Mars. But she's not in charge of the operation. I presume there's some... Yeah, and I presume there's some quid pro quo agreement going on. They must be paying her for use of her facilities and stuff. Or maybe they're they're allowing her to share in the technology or whatever. But it didn't make much sense that Carol was the one who introduced him to Faraday. But if they're going to cut Flag out completely, I suppose it's an edit that that helps. Uh, The exposition scene is a lot shorter. Because there's no politics yeah, so it's considerably shorter. Where, um, it's just, we got this spaceship, you go onto the moon. Mars. Mars. We want to beat the Ruskies, curse those Reds. <laughs> Next! And that's, that's pretty much it, isn't it? It's, it's done and dusted. Uh, back in Gotham City, Batman meets John to talk about the cult. Jeremy Sisto, I thought, was, was not. He wasn't fit enough. A particularly Batman. good Batman, was he? No. See, the. No, would have been a better Batman. You know, Hi, John. I'm Batman. <laughs> no, that would have been awful. Yeah. Adam West. <laughs> I Adam West to do it. Um, Adam West can do an actually pretty good animated Batman. Yeah. I think. When he's given the chance. Uh, yeah. It's, it's hard, really, because everyone's a bit of a disappointment after Kevin Conroy. Aren't they? He is Batman. To us, he's Batman. Especially when you grow up with him like Yeah. And that's, that, I mean, I watched a couple of episodes of Batman the Animated Series the other day. After listening to going, Kevin yeah. Smith's interview with Mark Hamill, yeah. I watched Heart of Ice, and it's like, bloody hell, that's an excellent episode. <laughs> and it is one of those things I've been watching and enjoying the Spider-Man animated series. Yeah. But it's not a patch on Batman. It really isn't. Mm. Just that 25-minute episode was just fantastic. Yeah. It was really, really good. What about Superman? Superman's not as good as Batman. Because and this carried. I watched an episode of Justice League yesterday as well, A Better World, which was fantastic. Hmm. And the problem I have with the Superman animated series and the Justice League animated series, certainly the early episodes, is that they would establish how cool Batman was by showing him do really, really cool stuff Hmm. that made the other members of the team seem a bit dumb. But the most egregious thing was Batman was outdoing them all. Yeah, the most egregious thing was they would establish how powerful a bad guy was by having him beat the crap out of Superman. And this just became, at first, it was, oh, right, he's quite powerful because he's beating the crap out of Superman. But then, doing but then you've time. seen it again. And it happened in A Better World. There's a scene in A Better World, you didn't watch it with me, did you? Where I heard it. It's another dimension where the superheroes have gone, not bad, but they've finally taken that next step into Superman fries Lex Luthor yeah. and burns him to a crisp, and that's the first step into taking over the world. So what, they take a smart move? Yeah, essentially. So they take over the world, and then they find our dimension. Yeah. And they try to break into our dimension and make it the same way. It's to say it's a it's a simplified version of the what are the Earth the other justice yeah the Earth Two Justice League what are they called um, Ultraman yeah it's a simplified version of them right. basically and you get a scene where our Justice League 
go to Arkham where the Joker's been lobotomized. Okay. But in a lovely touch, still played by Mark Hamill. And he was, excellent Superman. I would love to show you into the garden. Follow me. And he did a really brilliant job of, and it was really creepy okay. to hear the Joker beat. Everything's great. <laughs> it was right spooky. But then Superman of the other dimension has left a bunch of robots though to stop him. Superman robots, so they're quite powerful. Mm. And what you see is Wonder Woman takes out her Superman robot and they're fighting and it seems to be an even match. And John Johns is taken out and it's fine. And the other Superman robot pounds the crap out of Superman. And you're like, what? what? So John Johns and Wonder Woman are having no problem, but Superman is having the crap beaten out of him by one of his own robots. Kryptonite. Yeah. I did like how they took out um, Doomsday in it. How? Superman lobotomized him. Okay. He just fried his brain. And he's threatening to beat him and kill him and eat the limbs of his children and Superman just burns his brain out and he just falls to his knees Doomsday. and goes... Uh, yeah, Doomsday. He speaks. Yeah, he speaks in the cartoon. Oh, right. Anyway, we're not talking about the Justice League that cartoon. Kind of takes the character out of it. We're, we're talking about this specific thing. Um, as, yeah, so the point we were trying to make mm. was that after Kevin Conroy, everybody's disappointed. John's wall of weird is at home, mm. not at work and it references material from the comic that's not in the film. He still has it at work, though. Does he? Yeah, because... I'm not sure now, too. I don't... They still take the mick out of him. Yes, they know about it. They know of his interest in the paranormal and the supernatural, Mm -hmm. but his wall of weird is at home. Right. It isn't at work. Um, Because there's stuff on his... Well, you spotted most of this. We we went back and freeze-framed it. Yeah. You spotted that there was references to Task Force X and Adam Strange and John Henry. The only... Mention of John Henry in the entire film, apart from the bit in the epilogue. And um, the news report was there as well. Oh yeah, we get Morrow, don't we? Yeah. Doing the news report on his death. That's but it. That was it. But we don't actually see the best part in the story. Yeah, John. the most emotional part of the story that has the most resonance mm-hmm. is completely cut from the animated movie. And there's a part of you that's like, I wonder if that was cut for for um, reasons yeah, of race. Yeah. yeah. There is that, and it's quite heavy. Is it not quite heavy for a PG-13? Yes, but I would argue it's an integral part of the story. It's the reason John decides to leave. Mm. It's still the reason John decides to leave in the film. It's just nowhere near as effective. No. Because you've not been shown John Henry. So you've got none of his story in it. So it just it doesn't work as well. Next we get the Gorilla Grodd scene, which was pretty cool. Mm. Always kill scene Gorilla Grodd. Um, Faraday tries to capture the Flash as in the comics I like this quite a bit more in the film because it was a, there was more of it it was yeah. three panels and done in the comic wasn't it whereas in the film it was quite a, an excellent excellently animated fight scene it reminded me of the scene in Planet of the Apes where they captured Taylor mm. I thought that was really good and Flash's escape is really good he fires the bullet at him and he vibrates out of the way of both the bullet and the net simultaneously and just legs it yeah. which I thought was really good uh, John is then introduced to the scientist from Ferris, the one that is passed off as being a bit mad Yeah. in the film. The introduction is pretty much the same as the comic, and he tells John about the mission to Mars. John's a lot more open here than in the comic, and you only see like the back of Commissioner Gordon. He's got like a Harrison Ford-esque cameo. You know about that, don't you? What? That Harrison Ford's in E.T. No, I did not. And you just see his back walking away, because his scene was cut from the film. I didn't know so if you know it's him, you go, <laughs> that's Harrison Ford. 
But if you don't. Yeah, so and it's the same in this. Commissioner Gordon turns away and you're like, oh, there's Commissioner Gordon and he walks off. Mm. So it's pretty much the same as Ford's cameo in uh, E.T. John Henry's crusade against the clan, as we mentioned, is then next, but it's reduced to a TV news report. Um, you know, we've already said maybe it's too heavy for a cartoon. Uh, Flash then resigns. Yeah. And again, oh, this is where the, the copy went black and white with the TV was on. Yeah. So the Flash's resignation was in black and white, which fitted quite well. Because hmm. TVs were black and white in the 50s, unless you were The Adventures of Superman, obviously, <laughs> which was in colour. Was it? It wasn't broadcast in colour, because mostly TVs were black and white, but they colour. filmed it in colour, which is many people's theory as to why it had such longevity. Yeah. Because they had four seasons of colour episodes. Yeah. So when colour TV really kicked off in the back end of the 60s, most shows were still black and white, even when they were going into syndication in the early well, 70s. Was one of the early... They were still black and white, but Superman, the producers, went, well, we have these four seasons of episodes in colour. And they went, oh, we shall have them. And so, that's, so the DVDs in black and white? Or the first two seasons are in black and white because they were filmed yeah. in black and white, but the last four seasons are in colour. Again, seasons five and six of that show have never been released legally over here. I bought you one of those seasons. You bought me season two. The, the only birthday present I've ever The only birthday it. present you've ever paid the only, the only time I've ever had money. Well, I'm just I'm, I'm expecting you to stockpile it all up for when you work. Okay. Okay. Uh, we then go to the Batcave. Batman researches the center, and again, scenes edited from the film are referenced. We see Rosa Parks and Malcolm X, although they're not mentioned in the comic. No. So I thought that was quite an interesting inclusion. Ray Palmer is on the cover of Invention Monthly, mm. not Scientific American, probably again due to rights issues. Um, <clears throat> we get the only reference to the losers. Which is a photo of the right on the wall. Yeah, and Dinosaur Island. Mm. The only reference to it in the film. Uh, John locates the cave here, and unlike the comic, he gives the Batman his research material. Without the added pathos of John Henry's death, John's decision to leave has none of the impact of the comic. It's more based on Barry's resignation. Yeah, Barry's resignation plays into it more, but he does react to the John Henry News report. But really, that's his turning point in the comic book story, isn't it? It's his realisation, the man's inhumanity to man stuff. Or is in the movie, it's just like, ah, sod it, I'm bored here. Yeah. Well, no, he's not. It's not a case of, I'm bored. That does play into it, but they do play a big deal about John has been working behind the scenes for such a long time and thinking about going back home, Absolutely, but he's also... But inevitably uh, yeah, betrayed. betrayed. Well done. So he's like, he's kind of wanting to stay here. He loves his adopted home. But he's like, well, they can't accept this guy. And just because of the colour of his skin, they're not going to accept me. Yeah. And that's when he decides, right, I've had enough, I'm going home. And that's not in the film. We go straight to the flying cloud taking off in the next scene. John is captured, the same as the comic, by Faraday. Faraday is rescued by John as the craft blasts off. Yeah. In the film. Which so they both would have died. I remember thinking we both just kind of looked at each other, there, didn't we? In that they were both under the thrusters when John saved Faraday, which made not a lick of sense. Well, there's a bit on that later where Hal's been set on fire at like 2,500 degrees and he's perfectly fine. Is it Hal? See, I don't remember that. Yes, when he's falling back. When he's falling back to Earth. Yeah. But this. They're under, they're, he's not even falling through the atmosphere slowly burning so in that case you could argue that his suit is protecting him and then he gets rescued at 2,500 yeah, well, he gets rescued just in time I'll, he's been burning for five I'll minutes I'll cut him some slack in the film they are directly under the flying clouds thrusters mm. as it takes off whereas in the comic he gets him out of the way just before they launch yeah so both of us just looked at each other and we? went what? 
It's tense, but silly. Yeah, it's like, why are they not dead? So, especially John, who's yeah. terrified of fire. <clears throat> the next scene is the biggest deviation from the comic. Hal isn't scrubbed from the mission. No. He's on board the flying cloud when it takes off. And it's only him and Flag. Yeah, there's no Karen Grace, there's no Jimmy Watson. What was his name? One guy. Yeah, him. Uh, the ship malfunctions independently instead of Jimmy Watson sabotaging it. And Flag goes for the destruct sequence after telling Hal that the weapons are on board. Yeah, he just goes to destroy it. Carol clocks Faraday because she knew nothing about this. And says something completely different. Yeah, a scene that isn't in the comic. Because if you think about it, she wouldn't know about it. No. The military operation of Operation Flying Cloud is bugger all to do with Carol Ferris. So, yeah, so again, that was... Yeah. Without the challenges of the unknown, Hal and Flag have a pointless fist fight and almost burn up in the atmosphere. Hal falls out of the, the ship, which is what Michael was just talking about. Flag busts the cockpit and Hal starts burning up, which is what you were just on about, isn't it? Mm. Superman rescues him as he's Five falling through later. the atmosphere. Now, Michael's argument here is he doesn't care how good his spacesuit is. <laughs> Hal Jordan is now a crispy critter. At 2,000 degrees, yeah. Yeah, so, but anyway, Superman rescues him. So we don't get the really cool scene of Superman fighting the giant robot in Tokyo. No. And again, Superman fails to save um, Flag, who detonates the ship at this that point. Again, none of the pathos of the original comic book story. Yeah. Where Flag looks as he's dying to not get his life flashing before his eyes, but he gets the life he would have liked to have had. Mm. And him and Karen press the detonator button together. Whereas in the comic he, the film, he's just doing it for the sake of doing it. Yeah, well, doing it, he was, he's doing it to save the world. If that ship crashes back Superman on Earth... could have saved him. Yeah, it's like, you know. It, it didn't make as much sense in the film. Um, the government can blow up Nevada Desert all they want with nuclear bombs, but one ship can't, no. No, it's, it's, I can see why they made that change. Because he's a, a character that they obviously decided was superfluous. Mm. But it, it remo- it's, his death has none of the emotional impact. Nothing. Of the comic. The emotional just, impact. You're just kind of like, oh, alright, he's dead then. <laughs> but he's only been in one scene prior to this. Yeah. So you're kind of like, well, I don't really he's care. He's in the movie for a whole five minutes. Yeah, if that, if his total screen time is five minutes, I'd be very surprised. Uh, we then cut to Faraday interrogating John and Superman makes his displeasure about this known. Is that in the comic? Yes, it is, isn't yeah. it? Superman not being happy oh, about he, that. The, the bit about him having the power to escape but isn't, yeah. isn't in the comic. Yes, it is. Is it? Faraday realises it himself. Oh, Superman doesn't say. No. So. In the film, Superman points it out. Hmm. Because, again, the dialogue is far more on the nose in the film. In the comic, Faraday actually, when they're playing chess... Yeah. Faraday says to him, I do realise you could break out of here at any time. Why are you still here? And John is like, I like our chess games. But really, his mental touch with Faraday has made him realise that Faraday's not actually a bad guy. No. And he can do more good by staying there and slowly bringing him around to his way of thinking, can't he? Mm-hmm. And showing him that just because he's green and has pointy hands doesn't mean he's a bad guy. And uh, none of that's in the film. No. The film takes the Seth MacFarlane approach. Well, I've just been blatantly obvious. Yeah. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Uh, Paradise Island, the dissension in the ranks between Wonder Woman and Athena that goes nowhere yeah. and isn't in the comic. I'm going to take you over, I win. Oh. Yeah, and it's like, why is this even here then? Mm. So you've cut important scenes from the comic 
and then added this superfluous scene. Silly two-second. <laughs> that is not needed. Yeah. It's like, huh? Because um, in the film, Wonder Woman's just lounging around eating grapes and reading, isn't she? Yeah. And Athena's off playing in the water with dolphins or something. <laughs> um, so, you know, maybe they just thought we needed an action bit, or maybe they just thought we liked seeing women fight. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> well, maybe. Uh, the sky's darken, as they do in the comics. Hal gets whisked away from Ferris by having Sir. Sir doesn't appear to have crashed in a spaceship in the film. Which makes sense, because... Why does he need a spaceship? What does yeah. God need with a spaceship? To quote James D. Kirk. Um, Sir explains all the Green Lantern backstory and the centre before he dies, and then bequeaths the ring to Hal. Yeah. Which does get rid of a lot of explanation later. Doesn't he say in the movie that he came to Earth to fight the centre? Yes. Whereas, again, in the comic, that's implied. Yeah. And Hal goes, I wonder if this is why he was here, but it's not spelled out for you. Mm. So, again, the comic is a lot more subtle than the film is. The scene with Superman and Batman and Robin in the Batcave, whereas in the comic it's, it's on, on the outskirts of town, yeah. Uh, and here Lois reports on the attack of Canaveral and Superman goes straight there. The fight between the two is really quite cool and we get cameos from the challenges of the unknown. Wonder Woman arrives beaten and bloody and tells Superman of the attack on Paradise Island. So well, that's pretty much the same. Faraday receives word on the centre whilst chatting with Jaon and they go to Cape Canaveral. Canaveral, sorry. Hal arrives at Poncho's and sees Lois's TV report on the attacking island. His Which ring blows. What? Near Ferris. Yes, apparently. Um, his ring glows and the flash comes out of retirement. Hal takes the prototype ship, again like in the comic, but he's but seen with Carol. Seeded. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not as romantic as it is in the comic book. No. Maybe they're aiming at boys. Or maybe it's written by robots with no human emotions. <laughs> I don't think Stan Berkowitz is a robot with no human emotions. If he was, though. Yeah, it would make a lot of sense. Yeah. I will give you that. Um, at Cape Canaveral, we get a cameo by the Blackhawks, Green Arrow, Adam Strange, oddly out of Arkham, with no explanation, uh, and The Flash. Superman arrives and gives the inspiring speech that he gives in the comic. For some reason, actually seeping, seeping, actually seeing Superman hovering above us whilst delivering the speech makes him feel slightly superior yeah. than being one. I don't like that. You don't like Superman being superior? No. Superior is a completely different character by Mark Man. Superior Man. I don't like him doing that hovering above us thing. I don't. My personal interpretation of Superman, he wouldn't do that. And He'd be more with us than. Yeah, he would us. land. He would yeah. talk to us one on one. He would talk to us at eye level. It was one of the things Christopher Reeve mentioned when he played the character that he didn't like. He always liked the idea of Superman coming down to Earth and talking to people. He didn't like him hovering above us. Yeah. He would never do that. And they did it in Superman Returns as well. When he's talking to Lois, he stays hovering above her. And it's kind of like, you have to look up to me. The only time, for me, that has ever worked was in the pilot episode of Lois and Clark, where Lex Luthor brags throughout the entire episode about how everyone has to look up to him. He lives in the tallest building in Metropolis. He's the biggest, most important man in all of Metropolis. Everyone looks up to him, worships him. And in the last scene of the episode, or near the end of the last scene of the episode, Superman just hovers above him and says... Um, people don't have to look up to, uh, so he says something like um, if you want me just look up kind of rubbing it in that he is now not the biggest man in Metropolis and then he leaves and that's the only time it's ever worked for me yeah. that Superman would be a bit cocky with Lex Luthor yeah he did it deliberately to wind this guy up yeah. I can't touch you legally but I'm watching you 
and I liked that bit. And Dean Kane played that quite well. He, take, he, he does a reverse flash roll. I'm not going to do anything to you, I'm just going to annoy you. Yeah, which is, it's, yeah, I, I quite liked it in that bit. Um, Faraday, Superman, Faraday. Superman shakes Faraday's hand, and Superman leaves to check out the island, and then we get a really brief fight. Yeah. And Superman goes down. Now, it felt a lot briefer in the film and quite abrupt compared to the comic where at least it felt like Superman put up a bit of a fight mm. in the comic book. Or in the film he's just straighten and die. Yeah, pretty much. Well, well allegedly. he doesn't die. I mean, in the comic it's only two or three pages. But Coop, Panels, even. Yeah, the panels. Yeah, but Coop did a, such a good job with Superman throughout the book of showing him struggling with certain things. Yeah. Everything wasn't easy to him. So when you got to this point, you got the feeling that he was going all out. Mm. Whereas you didn't get that in the film. Like you say, he goes up, he fights him, poof, he's gone. Well, in the film, he was more of a superhero. Whereas in the comic, he's like a flying Samson. Yeah. I mean, you, I suppose you could argue a case that he's slightly depowered yeah. in the comic than he is in the film. They kind of make him more like the Superman that I suppose the general audience would know. I mean, it's not a change that's irritating or annoying, it's just... Different. Yeah, it wasn't as good, I suppose. Uh, then we get Batman brings Ray Palmer. <laughs> yeah. Which, to you, did you think this was the most egregious change? Yeah, because they're only doing it for like, a wider audience. Yeah, we need Batman in it. Because yeah. in the comics, Adam Strange brings Ray Palmer, doesn't he? Yeah. Batman isn't in the conclusion of the comic. At all. No, he's off being Bruce Wayne, doing Bruce Wayne stuff. Yeah. He's helping, he's doing his bit. But he's helping from But he's doing it from behind the scenes. Because, like, it seemed really dumb to have Batman there, didn't it? Because it is one of those things, if you're calling him Batman at this point, you're out of luck, aren't you? If yeah. you've lost Superman and Wonder Woman, what the hell's Batman going to do? I'm just going to throw a thing at it and open Throw it something close. at him out of his utility belt. Yeah. I got something in my utility belt. Centre <laughs> repellent bat spray that he just happens to have in his belt. Um, the plan to shrink the island using Ray shrink Ray is exactly the same in the film as it is in the comics, but Flash nominates himself yeah. instead of Faraday coming out and making the, the, his peace the with Ray it. The Ray Palmer stuff was quite annoying in the film as well. It's just Ray Palmer, what can you do? Oh, alright, oh, that. Oh, that'll help. Yeah. Where in the comic it It's was, seeded. Yeah. It's seeded all the way through, isn't it? Even if you, it's only subliminally through pictures of some Scientific America. Yeah. It's seeded that Ray Palmer's there. The conversation there. about his shrinking rays, I think it was a lot better handled. It's a lot more organic yeah. in the comic. We're in the film, it's, I have to say this, I have to say that, oh, we can do that. All right, bye. <laughs> yeah. I've done my bit, I'm off. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, Hal also volunteers to distract the centre with an aerial attack, which puts him more front and centre than in the comic, but this is largely down to the fact that they've purred down a lot of the characters. Yeah. We've not got the Black Orcs, we've not got the Challenges of the Unknown, or we have. These two of them on top of the dinosaur. Yeah, but it's like, oh, okay, fair enough. Um, interestingly, John remains as the Martian Manhunter in the film. Yeah, he doesn't change into a guy in a business suit. Yeah, whereas you spotted in the film he becomes the Martian Manhunter, and you didn't like that bit of the comic, did you? Where, no, I didn't um, like what Faraday says Yeah, what Faraday says to him, the yeah. real men wear pants. Surrounded by all these people, wearing you're gonna, you're gonna say that, yeah. Um, but in the film, he doesn't say that, and he stays as the no, he does say that, does he? he oh, he does say it, yes. Yes, Martian Manhunter just smiles at him, doesn't he? Mm. Yeah, but so he stays as the Martian Manhunter. Real men wear pants. I'm a Martian asshole. <laughs> that would have been a funny line, unless <laughs> he didn't say that. Um, 
We got to the bit here that I know you rolled your eyes at. Which bit? We've got Batman in, in the bat plane, plane <laughs> attacking the centre. And I think I definitely heard an audible groan <laughs> from you at that point. Where you went, what, really? Um... I thought green, green Arrow in his Arrow jet was pushing it. Yes, it was. But I suppose it was one of those, I've not drawn Green Arrow yet. Yeah. Let's put him in. But having Batman in the bat plane, was that just a bit too much for you? It was, because it was very silly. Yeah, and it was, I mean, when we were watching it, Michael said, he's here only, so that the regular audience could go, hey, it's Batman! Yeah. Yeah. I know him, I do. I read Killing Joke. <laughs> Yeah, see, I don't disagree with you. He is the only because Batman sells tickets, doesn't he? But, um, I mean, we get the bit that I didn't like the most later on, Mm. so we'll come to that in a minute. Um, But in the comic, as we mentioned last time, Faraday sacrifices himself for John. He doesn't do that in the film. He goes all cloud. Yeah, thus removing his entire character out, rather. He gets grabbed by a T-Rex and pulled into its maw. Mm. And then, fortunately, he's got the, the wherewithal to pop two grenades as he leaps into its mouth, just like Johnny Cloud did in the comic. It is very, it's the same pose. It's, yeah, it? it's, it's the, basically, it's ripped straight from the comics. It's yeah. the same pose, it's a super cool visual, I can see why they wanted to keep it in, but it completely renders Faraday's story out redundant. Do you mean it wipes all the emotion? It doesn't yes. have any emotion. Yeah, it, it has Faraday's none of the motivation yeah. in the film that he does in the comic, other than broad strokes and again. Oh, this looks cool. Yeah, all the subtlety and deft character drama has been removed. Mm-hmm. Such a shame. Um, the fight scene at the end is taken straight from the comic. The surrealism of the final battle is well handled by the animation team. The Guardians finally show up and Hal activates the ring with the bomb set. Flash does his run round the island. Uh, I did like the Flash's look of panic and the scene of him running on water. Mm. I always love seeing the Flash run on water. I don't know why. Yeah, it just looks cool. I I really just like that. Uh, Flash pulls off what he's doing, which sounds a bit wrong. If Flash accomplishes his mission, Hal does his bit and stuff blows up. Unlike the comics, where it's been seeded again, Aquaman shows up out of nowhere with Superman, doesn't he? He just appears. We don't even get a line of dialogue like in the comics, like, the dolphins, they seem to be protecting us. We don't even get any of that, do we? It's just Aquaman blows up and says, you drop this <laughs> and leaves us. Don't crap in my yeah, <laughs> Don't drop your dead bodies in my sea. So, yeah. yeah no. um, the final shot is of the front page of the Daily Planet dated July 15th, 1960. It's an excellent copy mm. of the last panel of the book. Except my big problem with it Batman Batman's in it, in it. Yeah. no 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 no. not only Batman's in it he's smiling he's smiling for the camera and it's like what? So this urban myth guy yeah I mean even if he'd showed up for the final battle which alright it's stretching it a bit but okay surely he would have slinked into the background before Jimmy Olsen got his camera out you just have his cape in like the top yeah you just see a a glimpse of cape disappearing Mm. but no he's in front and centre of the photo with his big cheesy Bruce Willis smirk on his face and you're just like Jesus H Christ (laughs) Um, as with the comic the Kennedy speech closes the film and the images are pretty much exactly the same, aren't they? 
the epilogue stuff is pretty much exactly the same as it was. The Kennedy speech is cut down from the comic, and the comic is cut down from the original speech. But it is all the, and we do get to see. It's hard to take to read it, really. Yeah, pretty much. They, they edit a lot of the speech just to the stuff that pertains to the film, whereas the comic edited the speech to what pertains to the comic. So it's a change that I didn't mind too much. It was nice to see the Teen Titans yeah. and the Joker. And the Joker was very um, Jerry Robinson, mm, yeah. wasn't he? Which I thought was quite nice. Uh, and so it ended. Did Superman not fight Star in the original DC Comics Justice League, I don't, rem- I don't know because I don't think I've ever read because that. Because in both the comic and the film, he's not there. He's not in. Star, he's right? not there. So maybe he didn't. No. Yeah, anyone? Anyway, somebody can let us know that. Is he, is he the Captain America of the Justice League? He showed up later. Yeah, he shows up later, and then takes charge. Yeah, possibly. No, because I don't know. Did the Justice League have a definitive leader? It was always like Superman or Batman or Wonder Woman. Was it? Yeah. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah, in the Grant Morrison stuff. Stuff well. I don't remember them having a definitive leader in the 80s. I mean, I only know like the Jerry Conway stuff. Yeah. But I don't remember if they had a definitive leader per se. Like, the Avengers always elect a chairperson, don't they? Yeah. Sometimes it's Cap, sometimes it's Thor, sometimes it's Iron Man. On occasion, it was the Wasp. Um, so they definitely have somebody who takes point. Maybe they didn't want to make the crappy heroes feel bad. <laughs> Well, Hawkeye. Everyone's a winner. Hawkeye petitioned to be leader for a long time, yeah. and they eventually had enough of him. He said, "Go and run the West Coast Avengers." Well, he, he in so I was reading, he was the, the new Avengers leader, and then Tony Stark came back and they got rid of the registration acts. Have you had Hawkeye die yet? He's come back now. Uh, how does he come back? House of M. All right. And and so Luke Cage is the new Avengers leader, and. Iron Man is the Avengers leader. Right. Because he was like, well, you're doing this. I don't want to do this. You're doing it! <laughs> See, because who would you pick as the de facto leader of the Justice League? Would you go for Superman? Yeah. I'd actually go for Wonder Woman. Okay. Wonder Woman's a warrior. Yeah, but Superman's a spokesperson. Yes, and Superman could be the spokesperson, but I think if you're in battle, I'd want the warrior leading us. Well, as a tactician, yeah? Yeah. I mean, Batman's a great tactician, but I'd, I'd want the warrior woman leading the charge. Because it's the same with the Avengers. If you're going into battle, I want the soldier leading us. Thor. Maybe the Thunder God. Possibly. But even then, just because Thor's a Thunder God and he's pretty good Captain at fighting... America's been in war. Captain America's a warrior. Captain yeah. America's a soldier. Captain America's used to giving orders. And more importantly, he's used to people obeying them. Yeah. Whereas I'd never really got that from Thor. Thor's a good fighter. He's a good scrapper. He's a good person to have on your side. He's powerful. Yeah, he's exceptionally powerful, but that's why I, he'd be Captain America's right-hand man and Iron Man would be his left-hand man mm. in a big battle, but Cap would be the one giving the orders, I think. Yeah. And I think the same thing, Wonder Woman's an Amazon. She's an Amazon warrior. For me, she'd be leader of the Justice League. Yeah. Batman would be the guy who'd like going, Wonder Woman, I think we should do this. And she'd listen to his plans and go, that has merit. And <laughs> but he's mostly balls, so I'm yeah. just going to charge him. Yeah, there. I'm just going to go in there and do my thing. Um, we liked the film, didn't we? It was enjoyable. We didn't dislike the movie. Um, that's the problem when we do these comparison things, isn't it? Inevitably, I mean, I've said before, I will always come out on the side of I prefer the book to the film. Yeah. Uh, there the, is only two times where I think the film is better. Goldfinger, there's a lot of the film that was dated by the time they got to make... There's a lot of the book, sorry, that was dated by the time they got to make the film. Yeah. And the changed a lot of it to make the film better without actually just completely scrubbing Ian Fleming's plot 
which is what they would do in later Bond movies, Moonraker being a prime example. Moonraker is incredibly dated, there's no denying that, but essentially what they did with the film then was just take the title and write a completely new story around it, whereas with Goldfinger, they still had Ian Fleming's plot and they updated it to work in the 60s rather than the 50s when it was written. And Jaws, I think the film of Jaws is actually better than the book because the book goes along a lot of tangents about Hooper having an affair with Brodie's wife and Hooper doesn't make it out of the book alive because of that. Hooper dies at the end of the book, whereas I think the film is a lot more streamlined and a lot better. But in every other... It's for me. Is it? It's dry. See, I've not read the book for Drive, whereas you think the book... The character development is better, it's just the film is a lot better. So the film is better than the book? Yeah. Right. See, I've not read Drive. What movie was it that you thought was well good and then you read the book? L.A. Confidential. You watched the film and it was utter pants. L.A. Confidential. No, it's not utter pants. Um, There was one bit that ruined it for you. Yes. The ending. Yeah. Um, I don't want to give too much away for people who haven't seen L.A. Confidential. L.A. Confidential was a brilliant film. And it was one of my favourite movies for ages, wasn't it? I absolutely adored L.A. Confidential. I thought Guy Pearce was brilliant in it. I thought Russell Crowe was brilliant in it. I thought everybody, top to toe, was fantastic. And then the boot was in HMV for £3. And I thought, I'm having this. I've never read L.A. Confidential. And I read and I tore through the book. It's a big fat thing, but I tore through it because it's fantastic. It's a marvellous, marvellous book that completely ruined the film for me. The book is so complex, the book is so dense, the characters so three-dimensional and well-drawn that the film cannot help but come out as a poor comparison. And the ending is just... The ending of the book is ambiguous and glorious in that the good guys don't win every battle at the end of the book. They win something, they don't win everything. And the film just ties everything up in this loose little bow and just ticks all off all the boxes at the end of it. And I was just like, And yeah, it has ruined the film for me because the boot was just so damn good. Okay. But yeah, so anyway, as an adaptation of the boot, with all the fat trimmed out, it was quite good, wasn't it? All the fat and then the good stuff. Yeah, unfortunately the fat was what made the book great Yeah. in this case. Um, while some of the edits make sense, losing the losers, much as it pained me, does get you to the narrative quicker. Some of the changes, Faraday's arc, for example, hurt the piece quite a bit. And ripping the political subtext from the text takes away a lot of its deeper meaning. And arguably the whole point of the story was the politics the political situation he was able to take superheroes and put them in a real life situation something I'm not normally a fan of but he did it in such a glorious way that it worked it worked fantastic see this is one of those things maybe 10-20 years down the line we will be able to put superheroes in the Iraq war and get away with it like Sergeant I'm currently reading Essential Sergeant Fury which was 20 years removed from the war you get away from putting so Sergeant Fury in the war and you, you, you go, yeah, okay, fair enough. But again, Fury's not a superhero. No. So there's a slight difference there. But some of them are really fun. Okay. Really fun, goofy war stories. That, and we may cover one of them. I read some Sergeant Rocks. They, they are, they're really good. Um, so, I mean, yeah, we mentioned adding Batman. Removes some of his more darker aspects. But again, we've said, because Batman's the bigger draw. It wasn't bad. No. Was it? We didn't feel having watched it that it was 75 minutes of our life wasted. I enjoyed watching it. I've enjoyed making the comparisons between the two. I wouldn't have paid for it unless it was cheap. Ooh, yeah. See, it is one of those things I do have this conscience thing that if I really like something, I will buy it. Yeah. 
I wouldn't be inclined to buy that. Whereas with Superman Doomsday, the animated movie, I thought, I bought that. Because I thought they did a good job of... Essentially, with Superman Doomsday, what they did was what all adaptations, I think, need to do. They ripped the thing to shreds and then put it back together in the medium that they were adapting it to. Yeah. Whereas, is there an argument with New Frontier they tried to be too faithful to the comic? Oh, no, they got rid of it. There was just some things they couldn't be faithful to because the comic is rich and complex and deep. It would have been a lot longer film. What's wrong with that? I was going to say what's wrong with that, but I've read interviews with Bruce Tim where he says they've actually done mathematical studies with charts and presentations and slide rules. Yeah, where they've actually mathematically got this. Yeah, to the the fact that the best running time for these kind of things is 74 minutes. You lose. Yeah, because you start losing money then on what it costs to animate it versus what you make back. They've worked it out to a and mathematical yeah, formula. Now is what three hours. Which, but well, no, the cartoons are still 74, 75 minutes. But it's why the Dark Knight Returns adaptation is going to be two movies. Okay. They're doing it as two films to adapt all six books or four books, isn't it? Uh, right. Well, that that's it then, it is. isn't it? Um, we hope you've enjoyed our new frontier. I enjoyed reading it again. I enjoyed it. I thought it was exceptionally good. Next week, I am handing over the reins to my beloved offspring once again. Mm-hmm. The, um, what did we cover that you did all the work on? Flash. Flash, Flash no. Final Crisis. Yeah. Um, everybody had good things to say about Final Crisis. Even Scott yeah. liked Final Crisis episodes, even though he can't stand Grant Morrison's writing. Point where he gave me his yeah, he gave, he gave you his Final Crisis comics when we were in Florida, doesn't yeah. he? That's how much he hated Final Crisis. <laughs> Didn't even bother buying the rest. Yeah, you see, here you am. I don't want. Which is <laughs> funny. So next week, I'm handing the reins over to Michael. So you've got five weeks of Michael's choice. Well, two weeks of yours. Well, I've kind of, I've time. kind of chipped in a bit. Yeah, haven't I? Um, so next week, it's the beginning of the end. And it all ends in a flash. Everything you know will change. That's the one. Thank you. I was I was searching for the tagline and I missed it. Next week we'll be looking at Flashpoint. I had not read this before Michael picked it for the show, so that's going to be interesting. You're really digging it, aren't you? I, I like You're it. really enjoying doing the notes for that. So hopefully it will result. So much I did it all in one night. Yeah, yeah. For the Five first, issues and all the time. For the first time since Final Crisis, you're ahead of the game. So um, thank you for joining us. And we will be back next week. Same bat time, same, same bat, bat channel, but no Batman. Oh no, he is in Flashpoint, isn't he? He is. You just everything you know is wrong. Well, yeah, pretty much. Uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us. Bye bye.
Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Make Work for Idle Hands to Do production, and all opinions expressed by Michael and Andrew in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and probably not to be taken too seriously. All music and sound clips used in the show are copyright the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Michael and Andrew make no money for this, much to their chagrin. New episodes drop every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com, but you can also listen through our Facebook page, which you can friend us on by using Hey Kids as the first name and Comics as the second name. You can also listen on our website, where you can also view the covers of the comics we've covered this week. That's www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you have an opinion on our opinions, you can email us on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com, where you can drop by and say hello if you're allergic to email. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Hey Kids Comics.